Hello, and welcome to Execute Chapter 66, a Star Wars fiction podcast where we discuss canon, legends, and beyond. And tonight we will be discussing at least part of the Star Wars Aftermath trilogy by Chuck Wendig. My name is Beth Van Dusen, and with me, of course, as always, is Chad Schonk and Ryan Schweck. But first, over to Chad. This is a book club and not a review show. So we're going to be spoiling both of these books, both Aftermath and Aftermath Life Debt. In addition to that, we will be spoiling, I don't know, anything else Star Wars, up to and including the uh, the latest season of The Mandalorian. So this has been your spoiler warning. Ryan, uh, any news? Yeah, before we get into the news, I, I do want to say that we were remiss during the Mandalorian episode to mention the passing of Jeremy Bullock, the actor who played Boba Fett in the original trilogy. It's it's sad to see all the actors of the original trilogy, you know, kind of passing away, but I guess that's how time works. It's been a bad year for uh, OG Star Wars actors, specifically ones whose faces were never on screen. <laughs> Although Bullock was, Bullock played a, an Imperial officer in Empire as well. Uh, yeah, I met him at a con forever ago, but I can't tell you whether I remember if he was nice or anything about him. We just wanted to bring it up, like you said, because we should have brought it up in the Mandalorian episode because that would have been fairly apropos. As far as other news, I mean, there really hasn't been too much news, this being the holiday week. Um, they have announced that on the Acolyte show, it is there's now a co-developer on it in addition to Headland. They've brought Rain Roberts in. Uh, Rain Roberts is or has produced uh, Rogue One, Solo. He worked on Rebels. Uh, and actually helped produce all the sequel movies also. So, I mean, nobody really, you know, they probably just brought someone in from the system to kind of help an outside person with a Star Wars show, but I I don't think it spells any trouble for the Acolyte. And then really the only, in the rumor report roundup, as it usually goes, uh, the big rumor right now is that the crossover for The Mandalorian, you know, where all these shows are going is that they are going to loosely interpret heir to the empire and that karen and i can never say her name right karen gillian in that her name um that she will be mary jade (coughs) i'm sorry what i didn't hear that Uh, uh, (laughs) yep uh i i don't know as much as i love heir to the empire i you just can't do it no Unless we can get a Stan Sebastian Luke, which would be pretty awesome. But I, I don't know. I I wonder if they might take a thing or two from it as far as Thrawn goes. But You could do Heir to the Empire without our main characters. You could still do... No, it wouldn't be the same, but you're right. It would be adapting it. But the idea of the return of Thrawn and him trying to bring back the Empire... Mara Jade, those are things you can do without OG trilogy stuff in there, you know? So uh, loosely is probably the best we could ask for. Yeah. Which is fine. I would rather it be that way. But we have talked on here about we would we wish they would look to the Expanding Universe books and stuff and start doing some adaptations. I just don't know if I, and I, you know, I obviously love the Mandalorian and everything they're doing, but I kind of want Zahn to get Mara Jade back first. Yeah, they, they've handled Thrawn good, but I I know he wants him so bad or her so bad, and has talked about trying to bring her in, and I don't know. I just hate that for him. Well, I just don't feel like 
it's it's justified in the Mandalorian. I feel like that's more of part of Ahsoka and and hopefully Sabine's journey. I I just don't want us to veer too far off course with the Mandalorian story and then just touch on characters that we want a lot more of. So far, the Mandalorian story is over. The story of the first two seasons is done. At least it seems like they're setting it up that season three is going to be about him learning more about Mandalore. Maybe, I mean, I'm not sure if they've announced if Katie Sackhoff is going to be on season three or not, but it feels like she kind of has to be. Oh, yeah. Yes, it could be that story about Mandalore, but the story of the first two seasons of Mandalorian is done. And so now they move forward. Maybe they tie Thrawn in with Mandalore somehow. And they find a way to, like I said, to not not directly do Heir to the Empire, but to bring in elements of it and relate it to the story that they've been telling and the the world they're building. You know, they what we are kind of witnessing is them building their own little Star Wars world, right? Their own kind of like they did on uh, Nef- with Marvel Netflix is building their own little thing. And so if they can do something that's, you know, it could just be as simple as bringing back Thrawn and having Mara Jade. And that's their adaptation of Heir to the Empire. You know, it could be that simple. I'm down for that. I think it's cool. Uh, Can you do a good, and this sounds terrible for her character, but can you do a good Jade story without Luke? You can either get rid of her hatred for Luke Skywalker, right? Or you could still have her hate Luke Skywalker and, you know, maybe at some point in the season they, you know, dig out the old files and reanimate him again <laughs> for a moment or two. But, oh God. but I don't know. I don't think they have to. I don't I don't necessarily think her story has to be about that. Uh, I think you just have to concentrate on the idea that she was the emperor's hand. Yeah. Yeah. And that she was the emperor's secret apprentice number 12. <laughs> Um, the the only thing about Mara Jade to me that is a not a problem, but is a little less exciting is that we've met several of the Emperor's secret apprentices since we met Mara Jade. And it seems like everyone's got a secret apprentice. So if it's just like if she's just like another one, she just happens to be a redhead. Like, I don't know. We've kind of seen that already in the new canon. If, if she's not tied to Luke in any way, then there's really not much. Then a minor crossover is fine. I'm not trying to be unfair to a character in any way by saying that like they can't do her without having Luke, but so much of what she becomes and who she is is tied to Luke that, yeah, if they're just going to throw her in there to be there, then yeah, they can do that and it won't bother me and it'll be fine. But if they're, you know, bringing her in for multiple episodes or giving her a big story arc, I find that difficult to do without Luke being involved. You're thinking, you're thinking too, you're thinking too literal though. Like all you, all you need is a woman named Mara Jade who was the emperor's hand. Everything else is optional. Everything else is. No, but that's not all I want from it is just a woman named Mara Jade show up. Well, no, I mean, they're going to hopefully tell a cool story with her, but you know, it won't be the same story. Well, and who knows, you know, maybe they have talked to Zahn. I mean, Zahn's said very publicly, he knows how he would bring her back and had a story for it. So maybe he's working with him. Eh. He hasn't in the past, but yeah, my guess is my guess is they're just going to have her come back and then they'll be like, yeah, if you want to write something, figure it right around what we did, you uh-huh. know, the, like he did with the other Thrawn books. Um, I, I would rather him not. Honestly, I get your point. Listen, man, when you make license, when you write licensed material, you don't own any of it. 
and it's just kind of part of the gig. But at the same time, I I liked Ascendancy. I liked Chaos Rising so much that I don't I don't want him to waste his time. I want him to keep writing. Yeah, he got paid. I mentioned it at the beginning of the Splendor of the Mind's Eye episode, but apparently also the authors of was it James Kahn and Donald Glut, who wrote the Empire Strikes Back and Return yeah. of the Jedi novelizations, are also have not been paid by Disney in the last five years. Nice. Which again is real messed up. <sighs> yeah. I haven't seen any, but has there been any word from other Legends authors, or is it just the ones that did the adaptations? I haven't seen any Legends offers saying they're not getting paid, but I have seen them post in support of the ones that are not. I assume that Dave Wolverton still gets checks, you know, and I, I, I assume that Kevin J. Anderson still gets paid, and I assume James Lucino still gets paid. But weirdly, just the just the three adaptations, just those three are the only people they're shafting. It's hard for me to believe, but maybe it's something about it being the adaptations. I don't know. We, we'd have read something beautifully eloquent from James Lucino by now if he wasn't getting paid. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, or, or Stover or any of those people. But uh, Karen Travis, you know, I mean, she's not someone to bite her tongue. So obviously pay them. <laughs> I don't see <laughs> Just pay them. It can't be a ton of money. Well, you know, Disney doesn't make a lot of money. It's a, it's yeah. a small company. It's been a hard year for Disney. Right. You know, yeah. They got to keep that splinter of the eyes, mind's eye money. Yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> it can't be that much money for those books. It just it just can't be. I hope it was a clerical thing. Those books just got lost in the shuffle. Right. In the transition. I don't you know, maybe, maybe because they're only printed now as an omnibus. The adaptations aren't the novelizations aren't printed as individual books anymore. I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. I mean, I have never seen them, They, but they're printed all the time in like omnibuses, right? Yeah. It, all three of them together. Maybe you can go buy the adaptation, but I haven't seen one in a bookstore. I've only ever seen, you know, buy all three of them once. I think they even have one that has all six of the novelizations in it from the first six. And so maybe it just got lost in the shuffle. And I know that's being generous to Disney, but it, it just feels weird to me to single out these three writers who are, to be fair, some of the oldest Star Wars writers. But right. You would think if it was just a missed paperwork error, you would just see some random authors rather than right. these specific people who did adaptations. Yeah. But if these books were, you know, clumped together somehow, or I don't I don't know. I don't know exactly how it happened, but it is interesting that the two other authors who came forward were Donald Glutt and James Kahn. Well, see, with the, the Alan e. Foster thing, I could almost see how it slipped through the cracks because Lucas technically wrote it. Right. Right. And so at first I was like, oh, maybe someone just didn't know what they were talking about and thought Lucas wrote it and we bought it from Lucas. Well, this is not a news. This is a Ryan was accidentally a Star Wars creep story that I thought you would enjoy. Okay. <laughs> so I went to the bookstore yesterday here in town because sometimes they will put books out before their street date. I was hoping to find me some High Republic before it came out. They did not have it. However, when I was in the big Star Wars section, there was a probably 14 to 15 year old girl looking at all the books and was obviously like reading through the covers and like really looking at them. So, I mean, I wouldn't think, you know, I was just like, hey, Kenobi's the best one. And then she like Aww. looked at me weird. And then I was like, oh, you should also look at Plagueis. And uh, are you stranger dangering? I, I did not realize until after I walked away. <laughs> 
how creepy it was because she looked lost. I was like, I'll point out the good ones for her. And then I walked away and I was like, ooh, that was probably not okay. (laughs) I don't think it's not okay. I think it's fine. It's just we just forget sometimes that we're old. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. A human being should be able to rec- should be able to recommend another book to a human being in a bookstore. Right. right? Well, and we talk about Star Wars books so much, it just doesn't even like yeah. pause for me to talk about them with a random stranger. I don't know. It's not flirting. It's not inappropriate mater- subject matter. It's not like you're like, you know what's really good? Tropic of Cancer. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's awesome? Prince Skeezor. <laughs> yeah, check out Shadows of the Empire. There's some hot stuff in there. <laughs> So uh, speaking of books, we're, of course, what we're going to do over the next two episodes is we're going to go through the Aftermath trilogy. We're starting tonight with Aftermath and Aftermath Life Debt. But before we get started, when uh, Aftermath was the first big novel to come out in the, what do they call it? Road to the Force Awakens or whatever. That right? journey. Yeah. Journey. Journey yeah. to the Force Awakens. And I was very excited for this book. I picked it up. I read a chapter. I put it down for months and swore I was never going to read it. Chuck Wendig has a very particular style. He writes in present tense, which is something that I don't believe any other Star Wars novel has ever done. Uh, you don't see present tense a lot. I believe the Hunger Games books are mm-hmm. written in present tense. Then besides that, you have to go back to like John Updike, like the Run Rabbit books. Those are, those are present tense. But I know that's what threw me off at first was that it for a story that's supposed to take place a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, the present tense felt off. Um, but Beth, you had another problem with how they were written, right? And I didn't think about it at the time. It was the punctuation drove me freaking insane. And I guess I didn't equate it to the present tense style that it was being written in because I'm just not that used to reading present tense style books. And I honestly didn't, it didn't even occur to me until you said it, that the Hunger Games was written in present tense. Didn't bug me there. There's something about the number of commas and dashes and semicolons. And it just, so when I did write, because I'm busy podcasting now, so I don't write like I used to, I would use a, you know, a punctuation incorrectly here and there and, and use it the way it's not meant to technically be used for effect. But I wouldn't have tried to write a whole series of books using that style of punctuation. And once I got the audiobooks, they're great stories. It's just that the punctuation and the writing style of it threw me off so badly that I could not get past it. I think I ended up liking it, though. I mean, I agree. At at first, it was definitely off-putting. But kind of as you start going through these books, because it's written in that that present tense, almost train of thought kind of, I don't know how to explain it. It's, it's very immediate. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's almost, it's almost train of thought. I would say that it's almost. And it makes it hard to put down because it's go, 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 go. Even when the story is possibly not going as fast, but the way it's written makes you want to keep going. Yeah. I, I think once I settled into it, I also enjoyed it. Once I just kind of acclimated myself, it's like reading A Clockwork Orange, you know, like you have to, once you mm-hmm. figure out, once you figure out the language, it's actually a lot of fun to read. That was kind of that way with this. I'm not comparing Wendig to Anthony Burgess, but <laughs> the, the, what the punctuation didn't bother me as much because to me, it felt like it, 
to me, that came kind of hand in hand with that immediate style he was trying to get across that present tense. This is happening right now. This is happening right in front of you. It's the, how to put this, it's very casual. It's written how people think and how people casually talk to each other. Yeah. But it's not how I'm used to an author talking to me. Right. And I think that's what put me off so badly. Yeah, see, I like a nice casual style if it's done well. My problem with it, and probably still my problem with it, is it's just, it's a Star Wars book. It, it's so unlike any other Star Wars books. I think it would have had more issues with that if it had had more Jedi, Sith, kind of mysticism stuff. But essentially is, I mean, more or less a war book. Yeah. I think it kind of worked. You know, it's that time after where everything really is rush and it's chaos and nothing's really set yet. I also think one of the more difficult things about getting into it was, like I said, this was the first book. Like this was really the first full on grown up novel that came out from, you know, after the Disney changeover. There's two before. Well, there's three books before that count. Tarkin and Dark Disciple were the first. Um and Heir to the Jedi, too. And Heir to the Jedi. And I think we've talked about those. They don't butt into Disney canon at all. And I have a feeling we're probably written before the takeover. Yeah, those books were already on the schedule. Right. Before before the purchase. And so, but Aftermath came out a couple of months before Force Awakens, or maybe even a month before Force Awakens. So, it came out, originally it was supposed to come out in November, uh, with the movie coming out in December. And then they moved it up to September to kind of get people excited. And it, I mean, it was not well received. Some criticisms I think that were legit and there's some that we'll talk about that absolutely were not. And I think that Wittig handled it very well in a statement he put out, but I, it, it's different. I mean, this was, this is essentially rewriting heir to the empire and taking it out of continuity. And I think that was difficult for people. It being the first book, what felt like the first book of the Disney canon was just worrisome and because we were all a little nervous about the handover still are in some avenues. And so when you're handed something and you go, here's, here's our first thing we're doing. And it's so completely different and and alien and foreign when really what I kind of needed in that moment was something that was comforting and something that was going to reassure me that they were in steady hands. And I do like these books, but when I first cracked aftermath, I was like, Oh, we are not in steady hands. What is this? What has happened? Where's my James Lucino? That was my first thought was I had downloaded a sample of this book on my Kindle and couldn't couldn't get through it. I couldn't even finish the sample. The writing was so jarring. And I was just like, I, I can't. I don't know what's happened to Star Wars. I can't do this. And then Schweck and Pete were talking to me about Phasma at a party at the Hornsby's house and telling me how good it was. And I was like, you know what? Okay, Fine, I'll give a different author a try with canon. And was so brought back into it by a different writing style or the writing style that I'm used to that eventually, yes, I have given in and now have listened to all three of the books. But I still don't know that I'm ever going to go back and read them all. So uh, so either way, you know, we had a little bit of a negative reaction to the and, and we weren't the only ones, to be fair that had a negative reaction to the first Aftermath book. Uh, let's let's talk about the first one. So before I go into my 
recap, I think it's important to kind of explain partially how these books kind of work. There's a main story, and then it's broken up by, I don't know, would you call them vignettes? I don't know. They're called um, interludes. Interludes, yeah. Little little short chapters of other things going on, and some of them are really cool, and some of them are just kind of, all right, that happened. Um, so for the purpose of this, I'm just going to go through the main storyline for what matters, and then we can talk about the interludes later. Okay, bear with me. These books are dense. They're very dense. So, in 2015, Star Wars was at a turning point. Only episodes one through six, The Clone Wars, and two books that eh, might have been canon, still counted, and The Force Awakens was about to come out. Aftermath by Chuck Wendig was released as part of the journey to Force Awakens to start to tell the story of what happens after Return of the Jedi. Book one of the Aftermath trilogy follows the leaders of the Rebellion as they try to rebuild a new Republic, the remnants of the Empire try to strike back, and a family is reunited and joined by a bounty hunter, a former Imperial, a rebel soldier, and another guy who's just kind of a fighter, who's just kind of there, who get drawn in to reshape the galaxy. While scouting for remnants of the Empire above Akiva, Wedge Antilles is captured aboard a Star Destroyer by Admiral Ray Sloan, who is possibly the best new character in canon, who serves under Grand Moffs and Yute Taskin, the Sith cultist and advisor to the Empire. Their plans are to meet on the planet and discuss how they will rebuild. Meanwhile, on the surface, Sinjar Wraith Vallis, a former loyalty officer of the Empire, is on a hot date with a Twi'lek at a bar and ends up getting in a fistfight after he watches a YouTube video of the Death Star being blown up. Not far away, Nora Wexley, a former rebel pilot, is reunited with her son after being missing for a very long time. Timonen, who has been on his own except for a repurposed battle droid named Mr. Bones, a shark-toothed murder bot. Also on Akiva, it was apparently a very busy day. <laughs> Jas Amar, Amari, I've never been able to say that a Zabrek yeah. bounty hunter, arrives hunting a bounty and instead finds herself hunting Imperials because apparently you get a lot more money for those. After being captured by a gangster, she teams up with Sinajir and Escape, saving Timonen in the process, and they meet up with Nora. Meanwhile, Sloane, in a series of meetings, realizes what book readers have always known, that middle management will not be able to run the Empire. And so she begins her plans to take command. Team Wexley make plans to capture the Imperials and split the bounty, not realizing that Adam Ragnar sent a whole team of commandos, including John Burrell, throwing the Imperial future council meeting in more chaos as they argue how to respond. After stealing a TIE fighter and witnessing stormtroopers killing a kid, Team Wexley releases a video throwing Akiva even into more chaos. Sloan shoots Nora down and returns to Imp leadership, Oh, and tells him it's time to go. The power outage from the attack causes Wedge to escape his cell, and he contacts the New Republic to send even more help. Little do they know, Mom Matha has already decided to get rid of the military. Great call there, New Republic. Sanji helps Team Wexley to come up with a plan to attack the palace from the catacombs, going through a haunted droid factory, because why not at this point? But instead of droids, it's big spiders, so they blow them all up. Once at the palace, they're captured yet again, seemingly killing poor Mr. Bones. 
the yacht of the gangsters arrive to whisk the Imperials away with our captured heroes, while Timonen sneaks on board right as Jom shoots at it. But somehow it's still able to fly, even though they very clearly say it was cut in half. And then finally, the New Republic shows up. After a swift attack, the yacht lands aboard the Vigilante Star Destroyer, and Timonen frees his friends and takes Tashu hostage. So I guess they can torture him later for information, because that's how the New Republic rolls these days. Slowness gave Savannah land a Lambda shuttle, kills him off, and escapes on a destroyer to hyperspace. Our gathered heroes decide to join together to hunt Imperials in Glorious Bastard style. Each and every man under my command owes me 100 Nazi scalps. And I want my scalps. And all y'all will get me 100 Nazi scalps, taken from the heads of 100 dead Nazis. Or you will die trying. And in the end, we learn that Salone is told by Fleet Admiral Galax Rest that this was all a test, and it's time to rebuild the Empire. Quite a test. And that's just one book. There's three of these. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. To help out you guys who haven't heard the audiobook, it's Jazz Amari and Sinjir Rathvelis. Oh, is that how you say it? That's how they're pronounced. Say it again. Jazz Imari and Sinjir Rathvelis. Sinjir. Sinjir. Uh, that's according to Mark Thompson. I assume he had some coaching. <laughs> Going back and looking at this, I really was surprised. And, you know, it's been a while since I've read these. But this book takes place almost completely on Akiva. Yeah. And the rest of them don't. I forgot how much this one book is there. And it's definitely a, the Star Wars trope of a whole lot takes place in like two days on this one planet. On one place, yeah. Yeah, just all happen to be happening right there. On, on the jungle planet, because yeah. every planet is just one thing. You know. But yeah, that's how it works. I think overall, what I like about the first one, I, I like the story, but I really got hooked into these characters. Like, I think, I mean, I've talked at length. I love Nora Wexley. She's become one of my favorite characters in Star Wars. Um Admiral Sloan was the standout, even in the people that don't like this book. Sloan's always pointed out as a high point. She's a believable Imperial loyalist, if that makes sense. She's multidimensional too, which mm -hmm. most Imperials are not. And I really do like that it's just constantly, they're having like these meetings she's in and it's just her thinking these people are useless. And this is <laughs> never going to happen. And she's right. Yeah. I was going to say, one thing that struck me in your synopsis was that you keep using the, the words New Republic. And how long is this past Return of the Jedi? This whole series takes place within six months, right? Yeah. I, I thought it was interesting that it's kind of presumptuous to already call them the New Republic, isn't it? So they are the New Republic. And when I was looking at this today, apparently this book is the first time you see the new symbol of the New Republic. They designed it for this one. But yeah, I mean, and you get more in the vignettes and some of the stuff with Adam Rackbar, you start to kind of see them fighting over what the New Republic is going to be. Yeah. Unfortunately, even before Force Awakens came out, we were able to see that the New Republic sucks. <laughs> Wendig is working with knowledge of Force Awakens. So, right. He's working towards that. Um, and he knows that. So. I think one of the things that was off-putting about this was that this was, like you said, our first our first time that Disney was venturing into the post-Return of the Jedi world, and it's not about Han, Luke, and Leia. See, that didn't bother me. None of that bothers me. It bothers a lot of people because I've read reviews, and a lot of the reviews are negative because it has nothing to do with Han, Luke, and Leia. Well, I mean, I think second I mean, book has a little bit, but... Yeah, they're all, they're all in it some. Well, they're all Luke, in it a little. Luke's not in them at all, is he? No. No. 
He's mentioned. Yeah, it's th- that that I do find a little weird that Luke isn't really a part in it. We we will get to Han, we will get to Leia. This book is just kind of like a collage almost <laughs> of, <laughs> of, a, of of what happens after Return of the Jedi. It's a collage of setup. Yeah, there's so, so much setup because it all pays off in the second and third books. But there's so much setup to get through because we are in a whole different place. So we've not only got to set up this new galaxy that we're living in, but we've got to set up all these new characters we're going to inhabit it with. And I know, Shrek, I know you love Nora, but she is the worst mother in the galaxy. If Star Wars in general is a story of bad fathers, she's terrible. She was trying to give her son the gift of freedom. (laughs) She gave her son the gift of, well, your father's dead, so I guess I'll take off and go look for him. Good luck, sucker. Go stay with your aunts who aren't going to watch you at all. I mean, apparently worked out with him. He got a sweet business and has a secret passage for his underground workshop. And has the worst droid ever. What? Mr. Bones is the best. Chad, please go find some audio from the audiobook and play it at some point during this podcast when you play it back. Who do you want of Mr. Bones? Yes, please. Because it's terrible. I, too, will share an embrace with Master Antilles to simulate joy. But I like Mr. Bones. It sounds just like the most obnoxious B1 battle droid you could find, but make it worse. But he has sharp teeth and a saw. He's awesome. And every time he dances and sings throughout the books, Mark Thompson does the dancing and the singing. Well, I don't know if he's dancing, but he he definitely sings. And it is terrible. And yes, I know that's a kind of droid a, what, 14-year-old kid would build if left to his own devices. Mm-hmm. But my problem is, this kid shouldn't have been left to his own devices. He was left in the care of his aunts who were like, well, we we didn't feel like trying to tell him what to do, so we just let him go live by himself. And he becomes a hero of the New Republic. He does. <laughs> Who dies meaninglessly. Not meaninglessly. He dies saving the galaxy. Yeah. Did all those pilots die meaninglessly? So brushed over in, in the movies that oh, yeah. he could have not had another story. It wouldn't have taken anything away from Star Wars or from any of the movies. And Beth, I know you probably get tired of hearing this, but guess where you do get to learn more about him? In the comics. It took me, I didn't, like, when I read this book, though, and I I don't know why I didn't connect it, but I didn't connect that he was Snap the entire time I was reading it. Even when they call him Snap? Well, that he was the pilot that I had seen in the movie. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah, I didn't make that connection for a while. Yeah. No, I don't think you're supposed to. I think it's supposed to kind of... You know, it's supposed to kind of come on you, you know, come upon you yeah. uh, that he's his character. I know he's not a super important character in the movies. Of course, he's in the movies because Greg Grumberg is in every one of J.J. Abrams movies. It's just, he's his good luck charm. Well, that worked out really well for him, huh? One thing that you, you, you mentioned, but I think is worth pointing out is this book also has a lot of just one off vignettes. Right. You've got your main story. You got your main story, but then you've also got. And this was actually one of the things that I found. Once I figured it out, cool about the book, but at first was kind of frustrating because I was like, when are we going to get back to that story? And then I realized, oh, they're not stories. They're just Wendig kind of digging into little pieces of the galaxy post Return of the Jedi and showing you showing you certain characters, certain places, certain situations and, and what they are like in the wake 
of the Battle of Endor. And there's some of those like I would like to know more about. There's one that's like the Acolytes of the Beyond, and they've yes. got a lightsaber that they think is Vader's, and they're Sith cult people. And like I would like to see more of them. Yes, I would like to know more about that, please. I, I think those are I think those are seeds that he was planting. Unfortunately, I don't think Wendig's going to be making any more Star Wars books. Yeah. And you do get one like, you know, it's got the setup of Han and Chewie. You know, Hera calls him and says, I need you to go to Kashyyyk. I got a mission for you. This book does have the Cal Vant story that we finally got the payoff for this season on Mandalorian. It's a very different story. But again, when when people get to tell their own story, they're going to tell it differently. So I find it believable that Cobb Vance's story in the book might be different than what he says in the show because he's going to probably want to portray himself as a little more heroic. So, what, what, just real quick, what are some of the little vignettes that we get in this book? Uh, you've got them pulling down the statues of the Empire on Coruscant. We get one about Mothman, Mon Mothma, uh, where she decides to demilitarize the New Republic. Han and Chewie. Um, Oh, the weird kids. There's like a kids rebellion on Coruscant. There's apparently a group of children that led by Jack who are leading like a little mini rebellion against the Imperials that are still there. Uh, You get a rich dude on Bespin who watches some videos and realizes he's in trouble and then they come and get him. (laughs) Yeah. Is this the one where we go to Naboo? Yes. Yep. The Naboo one's on this one too. Because if you needed to know... What happened to Jar Jar? Here you go. I didn't need to know, but okay. I honestly thought that the Jar Jar thing was a little mean. Like, I just thought it was a little mean and a little uh, too self-aware. Like, all right, we all I know we all hate Jar Jar, so here's Jar Jar as well. He's like a panhandler, right? He's like homeless. Like some kind of clown, yeah. Yeah, he's a street clown. But I, for me, that kind of makes sense, though. You know, when we made him, he's jovial and all this stuff. And But he was a senator. Not, not after a new hope. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I know that. I'm just saying, like, there's a... Yes, it's it's coming from Phantom Menace Jar Jar, but, like, in the storyline, he became a senator. He became a, 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 a character that I would think, at least on Naboo, he would be treated okay. But see, I kind of wonder if, you know, there's more story where a lot of the things that happen are his fault. Yeah, that's true. Makes him the emperor. He, you know, a lot of the things that happened are indirectly because of him. And I think that's just kind of his falling apart. That I'd like to see a story about like the the day they uh, they dissolve the Senate. Ooh, that would be a good one. Mm-hmm. You know, and all the reactions from the senators who kind of knew that they were just putting on a show, you know, but but I, I don't think that would be a, a kind of an interesting story about what did that mean when he dissolved the Senate or did he literally dissolve the Senate? Yeah, because there's got it. I mean, the way that all she, yeah, the way she rolls, I'm sure he framed it for <laughs> something and made it so the people wanted them gone. I just like I said, I, I just felt the Jar Jar thing was a little pandering yeah. like for to, to the fans. Oh, speaking of fan reaction, that also was not great. All right. But you're going to say it again. Is it it's not Sinjir, is it? It is. It's Sinjir. So when the book came out, Sinjir is a gay character, and there was a lot of backlash about it. I'll give, you know, Chuck Wendig wrote an essay and posted it, where essentially he called the people that are criticizing that, that they were part of the Empire, and that's who (laughs) they would be in. Awesome. Which I thought was funny, but 
I mean, I was trying to think. I mean, surely this was not the first gay character in a Star Wars book, was it? Temmin's answered. It's a lesbian couple. Yeah. I believe this is the first Star Wars anything hmm. to depict same-sex relationship. said, unless you count R2 and 3PO. <laughs> I think it's the first time we've seen it depicted in anything Star Wars. And so, of course, it got criticism from the type of people we wish weren't reading these books. And we wish weren't chiming in on Star Wars. But Chuck is not a shy person. He's not, uh, he doesn't hold back with his opinions on anything. You know, that's what got him, I think, unfairly kind of kicked to the curb by Disney, which was they didn't like how hard he was going after conservatives on Twitter and and kind of responding to the haters on Twitter. He thought that he was being too alienating. It doesn't surprise me. And, and we've seen since then more right. gay characters creeping in, particularly in the comics. There's been several in the comics. Mm -hmm. It's just crazy to me that they have to be creeping in. I, I don't get it. They should just be there. Resistance has a, a basically a gay couple on it. The two aliens who kind of run the junk shop. But but if you look at any other movies, I mean, it's not that gay representation has been great in mainstream movies yeah. that aren't Star Wars. And so someone had to take the first swing at trying to be more inclusive with the galaxy and... And I think he does it really well. Yeah, he does. You know, it's not his only defining characteristic. It's not brought up as a thing. It's just kind of there. None of the stories in Star Wars, these books and comics involving gay characters are about being gay, right? They're just, those, those characters just happen to be, to love and be attracted to people of the same gender. But none of their stories are about that because I believe what they're trying to present is a galaxy where that is not frowned upon, you know, where, where it's not a big deal. And see with him, though, I, I kind of think it could have been a little more of a vocal point, especially because he was an imperial, you know, loyalty officer. And I think there was probably room in the story they could have done where what that was like to be this, you know, essentially the Gestapo of the Empire, if he had to hide himself or what that was like. But I mean, that was one of the things I was interested in is when he said something, I don't remember which character to about having to hide it because the empire wanted children. And so if he wasn't going to be able to provide them with more or willing to provide them with more children, what would that have meant for him? And I, I am interested more in that story. To me, if you have a galaxy that has never shown any same sex relationships, when you finally get to have same sex, when you finally do bring same sex relationships, there's no precedent for it being oppressed. There's no precedent for it being looked down upon. There's no precedent for saying that it's not, a, it's not okay to some people. There's no precedent even saying the empire was anti-gay. That just never came up in the stories. There's just a sense to me with Wendig and I think in the same way in the Dr. Afra comics where it's just, they just are. And it's not, it's, it's presenting things as maybe we want them to be and not as they are. <laughs> You know, it's not that big of a deal. Well, it shouldn't be, but you're working for space Nazis, so. Yeah, but again, there's not one moment anywhere that shows that the Empire was anti-gay. There's not one moment. You're assuming because we equate them with Nazis that they'd be anti-homosexual, but why? We don't have well, any because of, of the breeding thing. I mean, they straight up say it in the book. In the book, yes, about the breeding thing, yes. But that's kind of this late period New Order thing. I mean, I would just assume because they're space Nazis. <laughs> Again, they're not Nazis. <laughs> they don't persecute Jews either. They hate all other cultures and all other species. Sure. Again, there's nothing that has been in Star Wars since the beginning of time that has established that that's a different culture. 
we we have no precedent for it. So no, I'm I'm not saying sp- space gay is a different culture. I'm just talking about the empire in general hates everyone that isn't them. Right. And what they stand for is pretty much what the Nazis stood for is go white people. Well, and so that kind of surprised me with Force Awakens too. I mean, when Finn, I don't know, Finn threw me off being a stormtrooper just because I had always assumed, you know, the stormtroopers were all white dudes. But I guess, I mean, they're more humanist than racist. They're specious. Right. That's all. That's always been the case. I just, yeah, I said, I just don't think there was, I personally don't think there's any reason whatsoever to show gay oppression in Star Wars stuff when the Empire, when there's no, except there's been nothing established that yeah. would show that that would be even necessary or that anyone would, would give a damn. It's just simply, we just didn't do that in 1983. No, I'm just saying it's an, it's an interesting character development or an interesting character study is what he went through. I I could have, I could have listened to more of what his life was like in general in the empire, but also as being like, you know, part of the SS basically and trying to hide who he is, which I'm sure he's not the only Imperial officer who ever had to do that. I would prefer, uh, I would prefer a world where he doesn't, he just doesn't have to hide it. And no one cares. That would be that would be my preference of how to handle this. You know, I know I when people always say like, well, in reality, there would be oppression. It's like, well, you don't know that. <laughs> and this isn't reality. So let's just let but people he was see who they are. Because he because he couldn't breed, right? There's there's never been any other indication in anything else that Dr. Afra is not seen as an abomination because she's a lesbian. The only reference to her being a lesbian in the books is that she likes women. That's all there is to it, you know. So she's just not a good person. She's she's a terrible person. <laughs> she is not a good person, right? So you know, like I said, I just I just don't think I just I I feel it, and that, that there's absolutely no reason to draw attention to it. You know, I would say about this book, and I had forgotten until I kind of relooked at it for this. That and we mentioned this, it really is a book of setup. Jom and Wedge, they're in it, but not really. I mean, Wedge kind of sneaks around in some air ducts on a Star Destroyer. He gets captured, he gets shot, but he doesn't interact with the main story very much until the end. Now that changes later, but I I liked having Wedge in there as a familiar character, and that was good. But I don't think this book would have stood alone very well. Oh, not at all. I don't like Jom. I don't know what it is about him, but I don't like him. He bugs me. Maybe it's the, I mean, every character here is kind of a trope in a way, but he's extra tropey where he's this battle hardened badass who develops feelings over time. Yeah. He feels like the stand in for a Han Solo type. And I don't feel like every story has to have a hooker with a heart of gold. uh, Several of these characters kind of blend in, uh, blend together for me. So uh, again, that's part of the, not problem. Again, that's my problem. But that's part of my problem in having it be you know, basically a completely new cast of characters is that um, only reading the book once, uh, now twice, it's still hard for me to kind of keep the characters straight in my head. Yeah. Especially when they all have names like Jom and <laughs> Sinjir and just names that aren't, you know, just Star Warsy names. Because there's in there a Jass as well, right? There's a Jom and a Jass. Jazamari is the bounty hunter Zabrak. Who is much better in the other books. I didn't yeah. care for her as much in this one. 
no, well, she didn't really do much, but you know, her I liked her teaming up with Sinjir. Yeah. And and mostly it was a relationship of of convenience because they were both trying to escape from the same place. But I I like the I like where they end up. And, yeah. you know, maybe nothing happens with this setup necessarily, but this is an entire book of setup besides the fact that Mr. Bones is the worst. That is incorrect. <laughs> Hard disagree. Hard disagree. Yeah. Hard disagree. Um, well, since this is all set up, we should probably go ahead and talk about the second book. Just roll right into it. Um, again, and he said, it doesn't mean we can't talk about the first book anymore. It's just kind of opening it up a little bit more um, because the second book is when some of that set off starts to pay off. Um, my synopsis is a little longer than Ryan's. Um, but again, these books, man, <laughs> so much happens. Um, on Chandrilla, Senator Leia Organa talks to her with her husband, Han Solo, via hologram, who is searching for his co-pilot Chewbacca after being separated during a failed attempt to liberate Kashyyyk. Leia wants to lobby the New Republic Senate to liberate Kashyyyk, but that doesn't go anywhere. And Han promises to come home, but their conversation is, is interrupted. Leia realizes her husband is in trouble. Han Solo in trouble? The heck you say. Meanwhile, Nora, Jom, Sinjir, and Jazz infiltrate the palace of a crime lord on the planet Vorlag. The rebels are hunting down a, f- hunting down form- a former Imperial Vice Admiral as part of their campaign to, to capture Imperial fugitives. But then they're captured, then escape, and find out that the Vice Admiral is a spice addict. But we sure as hell know he didn't get that stuff from Kajimi. <laughs> As they escape in their ship, the Halo, they are attacked by TIE fighters, but are saved by Nora's son and Ryan's boyfriend, Temin Snap Wexley. We catch up with Grand Admiral Sloan, who is called into a meeting with Fleet Admiral Gallius Rax, and Rax wants to, is the guy who wants to really rebuild the Empire, starting with bringing in Imperial Commandant Brendel Hux and his bastard weasel of a son, Armitage, to start a sketchy-sounding breeding program to help rebuild the Imperial ranks. So basically... You know, kind of like what the Jedi did. <laughs> Just kids. Then she hires a bounty hunter named Mercurial Swift, whom I remember very little about other no. than he is named Mercurial Swift. Leia and Mon Mothma meet with Grand Vizier Masameda, who offers to surrender to the New Republic, basically to save his own blue ass. But Leia and Mon say, nah, we'll take Coruscant on our own. I mean, no one trusts Masameda. Palpatine didn't even trust Masameda. Uh, after returning from their semi-successful mission, Nora is summoned into an audience with Leia, and Leia is like, hey, I know you guys are out hunting Imperial warlords and stuff, and that's super great, but can you go find my idiot husband instead? Uh, last time she heard from him, he was somewhere in wild space, but who the hell knows with that guy, you know? So on Coruscant, Sloan, she goes, there's like some kind of secret mission, and uh, she's ambushed by New Republic operatives, but is rescued by, and yes, I have to say it again, Mercurial Swift. After the escape, Sloan tasks Swift with finding the Hux boys, who are apparently on Arcanus, where there's a, an Imperial military academy. On the smuggler's mood of Narshada, we find out that Jass is in some heavy debt to Black Sun, and she doubles down on it, promising to turn herself in if she can't pay. And while she's at it, she tries to get more info on the location of the wayward Captain Solo, and they are pointed to the planet Erudiru in Wildspace. Sloan convenes a meeting of Admiral Rax's Shadow Council, and the members include Hux and other moths and Imperial propagandists, and Rax reveals that he has amassed several Imperial fleets in six different systems, which he plans on using to sack a few strategic Outer Rim worlds. Um, as one of the interstitials, we check in on Takodana at Maz Kanata's castle, where an ISB agent who blames the rebels for his de- the death of his family gets into a brawl with some New Republic pilots, 
uh, Maz stops the fight and tells the ISB agent to basically move the F on and uh, find some peace in his life. Let's see what else. Nora and company get into some trouble for their rogue mission, uh, for, for going on their rogue mission to find Han, but Leia takes the blame. But that doesn't stop old lobster head McAkbar from telling them to stop looking for one of the great heroes of the Alliance. Instead of listening to the Admiral, most famous for recognizing that something was a trap several minutes after it was very clear that it was a trap, Nora quits the New Republic defense fleet because even here in the early days, before the war was even over, the New Republic sucks. She and her team continue to hunt for Solo and they travel to Irudiru looking for him and actually find him. Han tells them that Chewie is being held captive in a prison on Kashyyyk and he's working on a plan to rescue him, which is good because as Leia is discovering, the New Republic doesn't plan on doing anything about liberating the Wookiees and that is some grade A bantha poodoo. Leia is not pleased. That night, she has a vision of the, that the child in her womb will be a boy and grow up to be a great warrior, but somehow misses the fact that he'll also turn evil and, you know, kill his own father with a lightsaber. On Tatooine, we check in with Jabba's former Beastmaster, Malakili. Is that how you pronounce it? Malakili? Uh, who is still crying over the death of his pet Rancor. He is ambushed by some raiders and rescued by a man wearing Mandalorian armor named Seth Bullock. I'm sorry. Named Raylan Gibbons. Sorry, no, that's not right. Named Cobb Vanth, the lawman and mayor of a place called Freetown, who we met in the previous book. Nora's gang helps Han get the information he needs about how to rescue the mighty Chewbacca, and they all set off for Kashyyyk. And in the attempted prison break, Sinjir and Nora are captured. People get captured a lot in these books. Uh, There, Nora finds out that her husband, Brenton Wexley, is actually alive and being kept inside of a stasis pod. They free him and a hundred other rebel rebel alliance prisoners, including Chewie. Akbar commands a successful New Republic assault on the Kuat Drive Yards, which is the they're the people that make Star Destroyers. And after Grand Admiral Sloan contacts Mon Mothma and says she wants to participate in some kind of peace talks. Back on Kashyyyk, Han, Chewie, Sinjir, Jas, and Jom discuss their next plan: the liberation of the Wookiees. All the Wookiees on the planet have been implanted with inhibitor chips by the local Moth, who is hiding out on an island fortress. Han, Chewie, and their comrades plan to disable the inhibitor chips. In the fighting, uh, over time, Sinjir is taken, again, captive by the Imperials and interrogated by Sloane's aide, Joran Turnbull, whose name sounds more like a like a West London pub or something. But Han, Chewie, Jass, and several insurgents make a plan to attack the Imperial camp and save Sinjir, but Sinjir is actually doing okay on his own and tricks the imps by smuggling in a hyperwave transceiver spike whatever that is, and shorts out the module that is controlling the Wookiees, and the uprising begins. On Chandrilla, Temin and his dad Brenton, who has been acting hella weird since they rescued him, take a walk, and after Temin sees his dad talking to a Senate guard, Brenton stuns his own son and stuffs him into his trunk. Back on Kashyyyk, Han and his team come up with a dangerous plan to take out the, or- uh, take out the orbiting Star Destroyers. Meanwhile, on the Twi'lek homeward of Ryloth, several Twi'lek resistance fighters, including Yendor, discover that the Empire has abandoned their garrisons, and the rebels celebrate their victory, and Yendor is nominated to be the planet's ambassador. Salone arrives on Chandrilla for the peace talks and for a liber- Liberation Day ceremony. Temin is freed from his trunk by the always-good-to-see Mr. Bones, and realizes he has to go warn his mom about his dad, both of whom are working on the Liberation Day festivities. Han, Chewie, Sanjir, and some other rebels board a Star Destroyer, but are quickly captured. Luckily, Wedge receives a message from Leia requesting his help on Kashyyyk, but you know, kind of on the DL. Sloan watches the Liberation Day ceremonies with Mothma, and when Wedge arrives, and requests a private moment with the Chancellor. 
Back on the Star Destroyer above Kashyyyk, it looks like curtains for our heroes when Leia arrives in the Millennium Falcon alongside Wedge's Phantom Squadron and Admiral Akbar's Home 1 uh, Mon Calamari cruiser. Han and his team break free, overpower the crew, and use the ship to destroy another Star Destroyer. And then the third Star Destroyer surrenders to Admiral Akbar. And Han and Leia experience a passionate reunion in the uh, Star Destroyer's hangar. Despite Temin and Mr. Bones' attempts to warn them, the Liberation Day activities on Shandrilla carry on as planned, but Mon Mothma's speech is interrupted when Brenton Wexley opens fire on our favorite Ginger Chancellor. Nora manages to stop her husband from killing Mon Mothma, and then all hell breaks loose. Temin confronts his father, who attempts to shoot him, he misses, and Brenton escapes, but not before punching his son in the face and knocking him out, which isn't cool, but then again, neither was shooting him. Nora tries to capture Sloan, but the Grand Admiral escapes after a fistfight. With Kashyyyk now liberated, Han, Leia, and Shui learn about the attack on Shandrilla, and Leia makes preparations to return there. Han convinces Chewie to stay behind to reunite with his family, because Lumpy needs his daddy, damn it. Sloane discovers that Brenton has stowed away with her, and they decided to team up to take down Gallius Rex, who they both are convinced has betrayed them. Then Mercurial Swift, there's that name again, shows up and tells them that Rax is interested in the, a planet named Jakku. While this is happening, uh, Rax basically takes command of the Empire because, you know, everyone thinks Sloan is dead and orders everyone to prepare for war. Nora and her team vowed to hunt down Grand Admiral Sloan with financial backing of their new friend, Princess Leia. Meanwhile, Sloan and Brenton arrive on Jakku just in time to see Rax's Super Star Destroyer and a massive Imperial Armada. Some big stuff is about to go down on Jakku. And we'll find out, of course, in the next book what that big stuff is. I know that was long. There's a lot of crap in this book. But that's a lot of stuff. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff going on in this book. You know, the book is called Life Debt. And Life Debt, of course, has been the term that has been applied to Chewbacca for, I don't know, forever since the beginning. That the idea that the reason Chewie follows Han around or is that he owes him a life debt. That sometime in the past, Han saved Chewie's life. And in Wookiee culture, that means you kind of owe your life to that person forever. This book kind of makes it, though, that... Han has a life debt to Chewie in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Which I thought was cool, which I thought was a really cool way to kind of twist the idea of the life debt that Han, the one thing Han can't say no to, the one thing Han has to do more than anything else is to help free Kashyyyk because that's what he owes Chewie for all these years. Post Return of the Jedi Han always makes me sad. <laughs> and it, in character, it totally makes sense why he's always written that he can't settle down. He can't stay with Leia. He can't stay in the new Republic, but it's always just sad. He never gets his happy ending. And I don't think it would be in his character too. Like I think a a Han that was happy and, you know, living in the apartment or whatever it is, he would be miserable. But, you know, between that and the Imperials jacked up Kashyyyk, their explanations of what they've done to all the trees and the land. And it's like a mini operation Cinder. Well, that's one thing that's never changed from Lucas yeah. from on or anything is the idea that the after the Empire came into power, that Kashyyyk was immediately strip mined and uh, all of its inhabitants were used for slave labor. Like it's always been the Wookiees have always been a very oppressed people in, in Star Wars. It's why you don't actually see a lot of Wookiees. <laughs> in uh in anything else right you don't you don't tend to run into a lot of wookies there's what black cranston or whatever his name is in uh 
in Dr. Aphra. But besides that, like, well, geese are fairly rare outside of Kashyyyk or outside of, you know, prison camps and stuff. I think I can only name three Wookiees. Probably, yeah, Chewbacca, Black Kashyyyk, and Captain Tarfles. Kind of lumpy. Not a lumpy. <laughs> I forgot about that. And Mala, I think, is his wife. And, Lump- uh, lumpy, who's finally canon. Yes. And there's a few others, I think, you know, from Revenge of the Sith. But, like, yeah, in post- in post Empire or post Revenge of the Sith world, like they're all just prisoners. I mean, even we learn in Solo that you know Han finds Chewie. He's a prisoner of the Imperials. He's a slave of the Imperials. Which begs the question: If Wookies are so rare outside of captivity from the Empire, how does Han know any bit of their language? Probably some shady scam he was pulling somewhere. <laughs> it's not something you would hear a lot. Well, in the Legends, he was actually raised by a Wookiee. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's there anymore. Yeah, that's that's not canon. Yeah, but in the Han Solo trilogy, yeah, he was like raised by a Wookiee. I, I, I don't know. It, I'd, I'd forgotten this portion, uh, the interlude of Cobb Vance's backstory. And yeah, now it makes sense because I absolutely would tell Mando a different story if my backstory involved Malakili and... Hut slugs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they have a baby hut that they're going to raise. Yeah, I, I would have totally told him a different story. Absolutely makes sense. Well, they're going to treat it like a pet, and Malachili's, uh his only caveat for joining Cobb Vance is that they're going to treat it as a sentient being. So I'm expecting that on Disney Plus in like 2025. <laughs> <laughs> There's almost too much happening in this book to dissect at once because it's. The first book is told in what, three parts? And this is five parts? Five parts, yeah. And there's so much that happens. But you know what the consistent thing is? The New Republic sucks. The New <laughs> Republic sucks. I mean, like, really sucks in this book. And and after reading this series of books, to to go into books that happen later, and they still suck just as bad, They they learn no lessons. There's nothing. Nobody has a takeaway from this. Nobody's like, you know what? We should probably do something different. Nope. Let's just keep doing it like we've been doing. I'm not sure Disney believes in democracy anymore. <laughs> <laughs> like, it just doesn't feel it it, it. it seems like and I don't want to be a dead horse because we talked about it on The Mandalorian and we talked about it on Freefall. But it does feel like the Disney point of view is that government doesn't work. <laughs> Or can't work. or And I get the idea that this big government, they're a young government and trying to rule the galaxy. I get all of that. But like some competence somewhere, you know. It'll be interesting to see. I mean, eventually we will get books after Rise of Skywalker. And they'll have to address it. But you know who the real bad guy in this book is? Old Mr. Wexley. Blocking my girl Nora and Wedge. Yep. Dad blocking. Yeah, they had a good thing going on, and oh, here he comes. Well, uh, continuing the bad parenting tradition of Star Wars, your dad punch. Your dad disappears for years, comes back, beats you up, and then tries <laughs> to shoot the Chancellor, <laughs> and then shoves you in a box. <laughs> that is the big twist in the end of the book, right? It, it's not too surprising when it happens. It doesn't feel like Brenton should be in the book if he doesn't have something to play at the end, uh, if he doesn't have a part to play. It, this kind of sleeper agent, Manchurian um, candidate thing they've got going on with him. And what I did leave out was that the book actually opens with 
Gallius Rex finding some some ruins on Jakku and as a, as a child, basically, I think. And then yeah. there's yeah. a there's an epilogue in the book where he's still th- where Palpatine comes to him and finds great interest in what he's found on Jakku and kind of semi adopts him or brings him into the fold. He sheaves him on up. Basically, the idea is that this whole book, or not this whole book, but 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 Gallius Rex is all set up for book three and what Palpatine's post death plans are, leading into uh, and because I think one of the things Wendig was tasked with doing was kind of at least answering the basic question of where the hell did the uh, first order come from, and that's part of what he's doing here, I guess. So does this take place right before Operation Cinder? Because I'm I am a little confused on that timeline. Yeah, I I don't a hundred percent know. It should be taking place around the same time. Right. But then if that's the case, then what is Sloan doing in the second alphabet squadron book? I mean and that's where I'm gonna be really interested to see the third alphabet squadron book to see kind of what the timeline is on that. Because Jakku is the final, and this will get into the third book a little bit, but Jakku is the final Imperial offensive. Right. So, I mean, Cinder should have happened before that. Or in response to it, maybe? Yeah, maybe around the same time. Is it it possible that they pull the trigger? Like, is it Cinder is basically, yeah, they pull the trigger after Jakku? Yeah, and I don't think we know who exactly pulls the trigger on Cinder. And I also think they didn't come up with it till after these books. Yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> right? Like, I mean, that's part of it too, right? But Sloan's still hanging around during Alphabet Squadron. Right. And that's and why I'm confused on the timeline. Oh, uh, yeah, it's true. And I, I kind of I kind of want a Sloan book now. Well, you know Ryan does. Yeah. She's the most interesting and well-developed character in this series. She's the most dimensional because she, I mean, she finds herself not developing romantic feelings, but eventually developing like a feeling for Brenton. So she, she has emotions and things that, and dimensions that a lot of these other characters don't have a ton of. So I, I'm kind of more interested in, in learning more about Sloane at this point. Well, I think that's what Disney thought too. You know, I think she initially was just supposed to be in these books and people responded so well that now she's in Alphabet Squadron. She's in the new Squadrons video game. Yeah, and maybe that's, you know, so maybe they're not concerned about the Cinder stuff. You know, like they're just using her when they need to use her, you know. I think we probably overestimate how much, because you mentioned a video game and like, I think we overestimate how much those things, how much they communicate. Uh, a little bit so maybe they were just like hey we want to use sloan in squadrons and we'll figure it out yeah and i mean gallus rex he's the bad guy in battlefront 2 oh is he yeah okay yeah i never finished battlefront 2 yeah but the book writers all talk to each other i mean for the most part i don't know if anybody still talks to chuck wendig because everybody else has come after him but they're at least using him as a template well i I think we talked about this on the mandalorian podcast some but they're trying to cram a whole lot of stuff into these you know six-ish years after return of the jedi and i don't know why it all has to take place right then but they're starting to overlap on one another in weird ways 
Yeah. Well, there's a lot more time to explore, so I don't understand why we're trying to cram it all into one place. Yeah. Well, we are and we aren't, right? Because like this series covers six months after Jedi. We don't know when Alphabet Squadron takes place specifically, right? At least in relation to this. And then we hop forward to the Mandalorian. Is there anything in between? Is there, are there any significant stories being told between Mandalorian and and uh, the Battle of Jakku? I would like someone to tell me if there is. Any of the things we have seen thus far. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Uh, I don't know. Not that I know of. So we kind of go from this period of like, you know, the end of the Jakku and the, the end of the war. Spoilers for the next book, but Jakku and the end of the war. And then all of a sudden we're in Mandalorian times. I think there might be one or two stories in there somewhere, but nothing significant. So, yes, they're mining this territory, but I think they definitely seem more into the five years after, which is funny because that is that is exactly the same time period as Era to the Empire was. Right. So, I mean, maybe they're going to move the new Thrawn stories. Well, obviously, they'll have to be forward a little bit. And again, not to go into the next book, but, you know, by that point, they're gone. Or they should be gone. Most of, you know, Sloan and her group, who I always kind of ta- thought of as, you know, that was start of the, oh, God, mine's blank. What's the fleet from Air to the Empire? Katana. Yeah. The, yeah. That was kind of setting up where the Katana fleet was going to come from. This one, I think I remember first time through definitely enjoying this one more, though. Yeah. It felt like more happened. Well, it did. <laughs> well, it did. But I meant more significant things happened. Other than, like we said, the the giant blender of setup that is the first book. What's important to me in the story is the liberation of Kashyyyk. That is something that they did tackle in Legends, I think. Yes. That was something important for me to see as soon as they announced the book was good. Actually, I think what happened was they announced the second book was going to be called Life Debt. And that's what made me go back and read the first one. I'm a big fan of the relationship in this one. Well, obviously, between Wedge and Snap, too. And kind of how that builds with him kind of taking a surrogate father role and then how that kind of gets ripped away for a little there. Poor Wedge. gets He gets his girlfriend and his new stepson ripped away. Mm-hmm. <sighs> when does the new Rogue Squadron movie take place? Honestly, I have not thought about it since I saw Wonder Woman. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm currently reading the or listening to the Empire version of From a Certain Point of View. Wedge is all in it and there's a whole switch between rogue squadron and back to red squadron and there's several stories with wedge and about the squadron so because they've kind of laid out that timeline of when rogue squadron starts and stops and it becomes he starts leading phantom squadron so i mean maybe wedge won't be in it it might be a whole new rogue squadron without wedge but that would just seem off Uh, i i actually don't expect him to be in it yeah, I don't. I mean, because I mean, you're obviously not going to get Dennis Lawson, yeah, to do it, and so they recast. I mean, I guess listen, Wedge is a character you can completely recast, and most people aren't going to care. Yeah. I don't know. I, I again, I have, I have, I have no reading on that movie whatsoever about when it's going to take place or what it's about. It's going to be X-wing shooting stuff. That's all. It, that's all. I, I know I'm good that. with that. Yeah, that's all I really know about it. <laughs> I also feel bad for Leia in this book. Like, poor Leia. I feel bad for Leia in all of the books. (laughs) She was going to be a Jedi and then, you know, figured out she couldn't because her son would die. So she goes back and it's a total crap show. (laughs) And 
they're going to let people be slaves and no one will listen. At some point, you got to sit there and be like, this is not what I signed up for. What I hate is like Leia is kind of considering the sequels as well. Kind of like one of the only characters that is like a success in her own way, you know, or that like keeps fighting and never gives up and is competent and all of these things. And she still gets the crap kicked out of her. Well, even even in by bloodline, Mon Mothma is basically given up. Yeah. And, and Leia's still fighting. I'm just like, what in the hell is happening in this galaxy? It, it is interesting to put kind of so much emphasis in these three books on this short amount of time. But I again, they're, they're setting up Jakku and they're setting up that in Legends, the war went on for years, right? Yeah. Which makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, you know, you, you kill the president. That doesn't mean the entire government folds. So this kind of has it where they, the, the, this, I don't know. It, it feels, it feels a little cramped, <laughs> you know, doing it all in this time period. It, it does. But I mean, I'm hoping they're leading up to other things because we do eventually have to see how the first order forms. We see hints of it. I don't think we're going to see that. Yeah. I don't think we will. And there's a huge time they, period though. They don't care. They don't there's care. A- Big jump from the Mandalorian to the next movie. Yeah, they don't care about those movies. We, t- we talked about it. I think what they're going to do is I don't think they're going to rewrite the sequels. I just think they're just going to keep going as if they're not there. Yeah. And hope we forget what happens in them. Not not erase them, not make a big public statement and say they don't exist anymore because there's no really no reason to do that. Just say, just keep telling stories and hope we forget. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and hope we forget uh, what happens in them. I don't think we're going to get a ton of stuff about the first order. I don't feel like the the last three movies were like X-Men 3, where we just have to write it out of existence. Not writing out of existence. I'm just saying. Or pretending like they don't exist, as as most people do with X-Men 3. Well, I'm not saying you, you pretend they don't exist. I'm saying that they they don't exist yet when we're in this time period. So there's no, they don't, what they don't have to do is fill this time period with tons of references to it. Right. They can just tell other stories without doing that. I mean, that's one thing on Mandalorian that I was was kind of surprised by was that they kind of made that direct correlation to Grogu and, you know, the Emperor Reborn, you know, but I don't I don't know. I just don't think they have to. They don't have to. I just I'm such a dork. I want to see all of it. I want you to catalog every minute for me in a book, in a in, in a movie, in a show, I don't care what it is. I want to know what happens every time. I think we're going to have to, I think for the First Order, we're going to have to settle for broad strokes. Yeah, and we've got some pretty broad strokes between this and Phasma. Bloodlines. Bloodlines, yeah. When we get to the third book here, there's pretty pretty clear. I, I And that's the other thing, too. I think the third book makes it pretty clear where they come from. So right. that's not a mystery. Where they get their money, maybe a little <laughs> bit of a mystery. <laughs> They got that Sith gold. I'm gonna go with the Grisk. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, they. Yeah, the, the. I mean, they go back to the international bank, the intergalactic banking clan. I guess. Yeah. I, don't, uh, I don't know. Can someone tell me who Mercurial Swift was? Like, what? What was Mercurial Swift? A dashing bounty hunter. Okay. All right. <laughs> that's all I got. Okay, so in the books, in the audiobooks, there there's a few big problems I have. Is one is. Mark Thompson doing Mr. Bones because that's obnoxious. Roger, roger. All of the Imperials sound like Eddie Izzard's bit of Star Wars from Dress to Kill. What is it, Lieutenant Sebastian? (laughs) 
It's just the rebels, sir. They're here. <laughs> My God, man. Do they want tea? And then Mercurial Swift speaks with this cockney... I, I can't even replicate it. It's this the most obnoxious cockney pretending to be posh accent ever. Do we have the time to discuss this right now? The bounty hunter twirls his batons and clips them back on his utility belt. I don't think we do. And it's horrible, and he's not a good character to begin with. But then when we get into the next book, we have to listen to him, or at least I had to listen to him a bunch. He's the least interesting bounty hunter I've ever seen written. One thing I really do like, I think these books get really good, is the fight between the Imperials. Like, uh, how it's all broken down. You got Masamata, who I really like in this book. Well, I don't like him, but I like how they portray him as just this weaselly politician. He's just sniveling. He's sniveling at this point, which is great to see. Well, he's also in over his head. Right. Right. So he's kind of like, listen, guys, I'll I'll bounce. I, I got I really like it's been fun, but I really don't need to run an empire. I really shouldn't be running an empire. I'm not qualified. So um, how about how about I just kind of turn state's evidence and you guys just kind of roll into chorus on everything's good. You know, he's like the Ted Cruz of the empire. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, that would that would be accurate. Actually, that'd be incredibly accurate. Un- unliked even by his allies. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I, I think you're right. You know, um, going back to Legends, there was a lot of that stuff with uh, warlords taking over different sectors, you know, uh, people trying to, you know, that that's what kind of happens between Jedi and the uh, return of Thrawn in Legends, right? Is that the Empire kind of does all this infighting. There's all these warlords and it takes Thrawn to come back to kind of unite them into, a, into a, an Empire again or at least into a formidable force again. And I can't remember, did we get any Sentinel robots in these books? Not that I can think of. I mean, we know Sloane gets one later. Yeah. Because she has one in Alphabet Squadron. Well, one gets to her in Alphabet Squadron. Is there one in the third book? I, there might be. Find out in two weeks. I'll have to get back to my rereading. Or re-listening. I'm still, I'm still so iffy on those robots. <laughs> I... Yeah, I'm not sure how I feel about the robots. They have needle hands. They're great. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. Um, so what we should probably do is cut it off, and then you know, some. We'll, we'll, what we'll do is we'll we'll talk about the third book, and then we'll sum up our thoughts. I, I feel like we can't really tie all our thoughts together until we get to the end of the third book. Well, like Ryan said, these don't stand on their own at all. No, you can't just read one. No, they, you, you can't just pick up the third one and have any clue what's happening. And so you're right. Like any kind of uh, summaries, any kind of conclusions we draw, this this story doesn't draw any conclusions either. Nope. It's it's all set up for the next book. So right. there's nothing for us to answer. So, Please don't uh, read an aftermath book. <laughs> no, no, you have to you have to go through them in order. Okay, well, thanks, everybody, for joining us tonight. And next time, we will finish up on Aftermath Empire's End. Dot, dot, dot. Or is it? Yeah, it kind of is. Shut up. Stay tuned and find (laughs) out next time on Execute Chapter 66.
You have been listening to a Needless Things podcast. You can follow Needless Things on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and at NeedlessThingsPodcast.com. Love you. Mean it. Uh Uh-huh. Roger, roger!